What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. He's a psychiatrist. I'm a camera person. I suggested we make a movie about him dying. He said yes. The camera person and narrator in that clip is Kirsten Johnson, whose new film, Dick Johnson is Dead, hits Netflix this weekend. Johnson's film isn't just about her aging father dying. It's about him dying over and over and over again. Even takes a trip to heaven at one point. We've got a review of Dick Johnson is Dead, plus the next film in our overlooked auteurs marathon, Barbara Loden's Wanda from 1970. That and more. I'm Adam. He's Josh. I suggested we make a show about movies. He said yes. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. A couple weeks back, our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon had us raving about Chantel Ackerman's Jean Dielman, a movie about a woman who hardly left her home. This week, we returned to the marathon with Barbara Loden's Wanda, which Josh allows us to wonder what may have happened to Jean Dielman if she just walked away and left her good-for-nothing son to make those veal cutlets for himself. <laughs> wow, that that is a thought experiment. Though Jean and Wanda, very different people. I don't know if it would have gone down just like this. Very different people, very different films. That marathon review of Wanda coming later in the show. But first, Kirsten Johnson's Dick Johnson is Dead, a gift to her father and anyone who has a loved one struggling with dementia. She kills me multiple times. Action! Resurrected dad. Yeah, resurrected dad. <laughs> but now it's upon us, the beginning of his disappearance. The thing I hate most about my memory loss is that it hurts people's feelings. You know that you woke up in the middle of the night last night. You got fully dressed. Do you remember any of that? No. Yeah. What can we do about that? I don't know. Everybody has to sort of prepare because everybody dies. I love life too much for that. After more than two decades as a prolific cinematographer shooting her share of relatively straightforward documentaries, which isn't to suggest boring or inconsequential, but more traditionally fly on the wall, Kirsten Johnson has now directed two inventive, decidedly unconventional ones. 2016's Camera Person was a memoir comprised exclusively of footage shot across the globe. 86 different countries Johnson filmed in, I believe is the count. The content was, of course, deeply personal, filmed, and curated as it was by Johnson, though only explicitly so in home movie clips of her twin toddlers playing with her camera and scenes of her mother suffering from dementia. Her latest could be called The Act of Killing Dick Johnson, due to the way she employs fantasy sequences to tackle tough truths, as Joshua Oppenheimer did with his 2013 doc about mass killings in Indonesia during the mid-60s. Johnson, the daughter and filmmaker, is more upfront this time. We not only hear her voiceover, we occasionally get to join her inside the closet of her New York City apartment as she records it on an iPhone. And she's almost as much an on-camera presence as she is a behind-the-camera one, affectionately and sometimes quite emotionally interacting with her beloved former psychiatrist father, battling dementia like his departed wife before him. Josh, you rated Camera Person one of your top 10 films of 2016, calling it an intensely moving and provocatively personal consideration of what it means to carry a camera, especially in a world that has seen great suffering. 
We've established how Dick Johnson is Dead is more expressly personal than camera person, but it also might be a more provocative consideration of what it means to carry a camera in a world, in a family, that has seen great suffering. Not that Kirsten Johnson necessarily crosses any ethical lines in putting her aging father through the ringer, staging sometimes playful, sometimes gruesome death scenes for her own cathartic purposes. I think we can probably forgive the time he soberly complains that shooting in the cold on a Manhattan street while covered in fake blood is even more painful than when he had a heart attack. But how much is this exhausting process actually helping him to process the inevitable? And does that even matter? But now it's upon us, Kirsten Johnson says in her opening VO, the beginning of his disappearance, and we are not accepting it. As viewers, we can't really ever know whether making this movie got Dick or Kirsten Johnson any closer to acceptance. What you can evaluate, Josh, is whether experiencing Kirsten's death-affirming stunts brought you any enlightenment or at least enjoyment. Well, yeah, I'm glad you asked for a personal response to this documentary, Adam, even though that's the hardest question you could ask. Uh, Maybe the time not to see Dick Johnson is dead um, is a day after you visited your own 96-year-old grandfather uh, whose memory has been failing for the last year or two or maybe a little bit more. And that that was my reality. So that's my context in seeing this movie. And um, I think it is cathartic. Um, in ways I enjoyed watching it and certainly there is joy to be had in this movie, but it's also deeply traumatic. Um, if this is something that's touched your life and, um, it's a really special work, I think for, for both of those reasons. Um, I, I think that, you know, to go back, let me back up and just kind of surmise, because I think it does relate to the craft of the film how it might have worked for Kirsten and for Dick. I think this is at once an exercise in really painful introspection where they're directly tackling what they're facing um, in a way that many families, I think, don't. A lot of families try to just deal with it and not act like it's really happening or not as bad as it is. These two are facing it head on, right? So it's this work of introspection, but it's also a work of distraction because as we watch this, Look what happens. They get so involved in the practicalities of filming these death scenes and the Mm -hmm. fantasy sequences in heaven that for the moment they're talking about costume changes. They're talking about how does fake blood work in this scene? And that takes them out of the reality, you know? So even though it's giving them a reprieve from mortality, even as they're creatively immersed in it at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the miracle of this documentary from the outside, watching them process it in that way and appreciating how it does seem to help them work their way through this in in a manner that is incredibly brave, incredibly honest, joyful, and is giving them incredibly rich moments together in these last final years. And so this this documentary is just a gift to, to both of them. You mm-hmm. know, you can recognize that on the screen. I have to I have to believe it was a gift to both of them. Um And for me, I'm coming around to seeing it as a gift to myself as well, even though, um, you know, so my grandfather, as I said, 96, the last couple of times I've seen him has said phrases like, um, uh, I don't know where I belong Um, or or a phrase, um, 
I, I have an unhappiness that he can't quite articulate. And this is a guy much like Dick Johnson on the screen who has mm-hmm. so been so affable all his life. I could totally see my grandfather making a documentary like this, you know, a very playful guy. So then I'm watching this. And at one point, it's at the stage where a year later we see um, after they've agreed to make the documentary. And we've noticed there's a, a distinct drop in vitality in Dick. There's a distinct drop in joviality in him and he says this to kirsten he says oh man sweetie your father is a wreck mm-hmm. uh, I, yeah i mean like it's just it's a hard it's a hard movie um to watch if you've experienced something like that um but i think it also ultimately adds to the appreciation again to their bravery and uh, just the things that they're they're willing to even talk about in candid conversations together. I mean, yeah. what a wonderful relationship these two have and and what like courage it took to to face that so they can enjoy that relationship. And maybe that's the cathartic point to me is is to inspire me to be more head on and to pursue those conversations even with my own grandfather and and to to not brush off when he opens up with a vulnerable statement like that, but to to pursue it further and ask, you know, why are you feeling that way? What's causing you to feel that way? Even if he might not remember we had that conversation, even if he might get me confused with, you know, another grandchild or 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 someone the next time I see him. Um, so in that way, I, I'm finding the film inspiring, too. So maybe that's too much of a personal reaction. I, I, I'm just trying to um, I've been trying to process it since I watched it within my own reality. Uh, and I think it's it's just it's kind of a miracle of a movie in what it yeah. does so creatively with an experience that is, you know, tragically kind of mundane. I mean, so many families are experiencing something like this and Kirsten Johnson and Dick Johnson have been able to make something miraculous out of that. Yeah. Maybe the only silver lining that I could think of, it occurs to me as you recount your personal angle with this film of having three grandparents die before you were even born is that I never had the opportunity (sighs) To actually have to suffer through yeah. some of these types of life events, these very difficult life events. But that doesn't mean I can't relate still to what I'm seeing on screen in so many different ways, including just thinking of it in terms of that word gift that you said. This movie is a gift to us in a lot of ways. I definitely think of it as a gift to Johnson herself. And I think that's one largely bestowed on her by her father. Hmm. Like if you really read between the lines... I don't think it's ever a matter of him really feeling like this endeavor is all worth it or that hmm. it's a lot of fun. But what does it do? It allows him to spend time with her. Yes. That's all he wants to do. Yeah. Right. So that's the gift coming from him. And also it's a gift for Johnson. As she does state, she didn't have this opportunity to film her mother before hmm. things got bad. This amazing life and this amazing relationship she had with her as well. And yet all she has is the footage she shot that you see in camera person. And even seeing that, though, brought her back to life. I think those are the words that Johnson uses. So this project of capturing him still when he's relatively vital and having more to latch on to to kind of bring him back to life even before he's gone. I completely understand why she's doing that. But I'll also say where it has that personal angle for me. And where she is giving a gift to him even beyond the time she's spending with him is how often do you hear people say, and I certainly had this feeling when my dad passed away, I wish I had honored him like this Mm. when he was alive. Mm -hmm. You know, I wish I had said the things I said at the eulogy 
to him when he was actually here. And watching these scenes where she gets to actually verbalize and sometimes visualize how she feels about him. That's, that's the stuff that someone like me goes, Oh yeah, I missed, I missed my opportunity. Just like you missed it. Kirsten Johnson with your mother. I missed out on that. Right. So in some ways, hopefully it inspires you to then not miss those opportunities as you, as you move forward. Now I will say that my reaction to the film and I agree with you across the board, I also think of it as kind of a miracle of a movie. I was surprised and maybe a little disappointed that the death scenes themselves didn't tie back more directly to Dick Johnson or Kirsten Johnson Mm. in terms of his fears, in terms of their kind of mutual and individual concerns. There's some hints of it here and there, but they did feel a little random to me Mm -hmm. in a way that I didn't expect considering, you know, considering the killing my dad over and over again conceit, at least as the movie's packaged and is even presented by her within the movie itself. Well, that's I think that's part of the distraction element I was talking about. You know, it allows them to make fun of death by having by staging an air conditioning unit falling from a building on top of him and killing right. him Which um, made me jump out of my seat completely <laughs> yeah i mean they, they're using stuntmen i mean as i said like fake blood they really get into this and and i do think the reason it might be so unrelated to what he's actually facing is because it gives them a chance to sort of as i was saying address it and not address it right address it from a a certain remove and and there's a dark humor to those scenes too right they're they're comical in a way Uh, and in that sense yeah some of them more than others i should say the one of him falling down the stairs you know that's more true real to life right that's something mm -hmm. that you can see happening so that strikes a little more closely to home um but the the other one of like a construction worker turning a corner from a building and whacking him in the head with with a beam that that's like almost slapstick and it is and so i think that's where um they kind of get to have a sense of that distance a sense of that um you know dark humor and there's there's a catharsis to that i think um that that does work fairly well for me and it also stands in night's contrast um maybe not even contrast but bleeds nicely into the fantasy sequences, which also have a comical strain to them. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that they work the fantasy sequences, especially in that they do tie back more clearly to father and daughter and watching Dick's joy in those sequences is such a major part of the joy of watching this movie overall. In addition to just some of the pleasure that comes from seeing how these moments are rendered on screen, a figure dancing and hovering in the air suspended as if in super slow-mo or sort of just caught for eternity there for us to observe the entire holy holy sequence with jesus washing his feet is another one that i will vividly recall right but yeah we, we have to give the context to that too though is that we learn early on that he dick was born with um basically deformed toes he doesn't have full toes he's all he says he's always been ashamed of it and so when they recreate these fantasy visions of heaven, you see Jesus washing his feet and there's a cut. And she explains this to him, you know, so he fully understands that there's a cut and his feet are restored. And that's just I mean, that, exactly. It's like this thrilling vision of restoration there. And, and there's a connection too when we see the two figures dancing, uh, wearing these on their faces are these poster sized photos of dick and his wife from their youth and so they're obviously representing them and what do you notice adam the male dancer barefoot and you know it's it's that's where like 
Yes. It's just so full hearted, this movie as well. That's right. Yeah, that's that's what I was getting at in terms of those sequences really tying back to those characters in a simple but a profound way. And I think overall what I'm getting at is that I maybe hoped or maybe it just convinced myself coming in that the death scenes and the fantasies might offer some bigger breakthrough, some kind of epiphany or or even conflict for father and daughter to mm. process in some way, rather than it feeling like a conceit to provide a framework for the project. And it's entirely possible, Josh, that if I watched it again, I would see more of that and wouldn't feel that way. But that all said, I'm I'm really grateful it did provide the framework for the project. I think everything you're saying about it being a distraction in many ways is really valid. But whether it's through the stage sequences or it's just the mechanism of movie making itself, I think the camera offers an avenue to deal with something that Kirsten Johnson doesn't want to deal with and that none of us really want to deal with. It is having to come to terms with this and accept it. And the camera can be a shield that gives you strength or it can embolden you to to say and do things, uncomfortable things, ask uncomfortable questions that maybe you otherwise wouldn't feel emboldened to do. So without the camera to spark in certain exchanges, I don't know that we get moments like the really emotional ones where we hear Kirsten's voice, for example, break behind the camera when she asks her father about the process of moving or they're discussing that. Mm. And she asks a question about how this must be like when, when mom moved, this makes me feel like when we sent mom to the home or in the heartbreaking reactions he has to the news, he's not going to drive again. Yes. Oh my gosh. You know, I'm not far enough gone that I couldn't drive my own car. Well, it's not about that. It's about the fact that you're moving to New York. Yeah, I know. You can't keep the car. car. I that's right. That. That's all. But in between now and the it's time only a couple of days. Okay. Sorry. I know it hurts. It's your independence, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And later when he says how much he'll miss her as she's just about to leave to go off on a trip to Israel for a bit. I think it's in these moments where the real reckoning occurs. Yes. And film filmmaking facilitates that and all those moments you're mentioning though adam are are removed from the conceits the two conceits the death Mm -hmm. stages and the fantasy scenes those are just those are what you would expect from a documentary like this uh fond memories and frank conversations that a camera is going to capture a documentary camera is going to capture and i think that is where they do really get into the nitty-gritty of it and i'm glad those scenes are included to be honest with you and this isn't simply those other more outlandish sequences but you know if there's not any sort of um i don't know grand epiphany or 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 even conflict that they come to is especially Having been a family who's gone through this before with his wife and her mother, they it goes back to that line she says at the beginning that you quoted. Now it's upon us. She yeah. knows. They know what they're facing. Um, and so she's resigned, but she's also resilient at that moment. And I think Dick takes the same approach because there is no answer to give to something like this. Um, there's no medical answer. There's no spiritual answer. All all we can do is sit together in it. And and I think that is what we get to witness mm-hmm. in Dick Johnson is dead is Kirsten sitting with Dick 
in the middle of this and because she's an exceedingly talented filmmaker and he's an exceedingly generous father the result is this amazing documentary um so and in that way you know it, it does have a certain catharsis to it even if it doesn't necessarily solve anything as we might desperately wish it could yeah and in terms of what we're talking about the artifice and the the filmmaking mechanism that's provoking this people have heard me talk and you eventually caught up with this movie and had a similar reaction about the movie Ordet by Carl Theodore Dreyer and mm. I would just say because I don't want to spoil it I really want people to have the same type of experience with this movie in this moment I'm thinking about as I did but there is an Ordet esque stunt that completely pays off in terms of for me maybe naively josh dramatic surprise first of all it it totally worked i was played completely in terms of informing our sense of who dick johnson really is and the culmination of that idea that artifice that art can provoke real truth and i guess just in case it's not clear to someone who's seen this movie what moment i'm referring to it It does all come together in a cutaway, really, a reaction shot to one of Dick Johnson's friends Mm -hmm. in this moment. And it just shows you that art can provoke real truth and that truth can mean real suffering and it can mean real humor, too. And it's all encapsulated in this sequence, just like real life. It's just one of those reminders that playing pretend is almost never just play. That That is a great connection to make because I think this documentary has a handful of little f- sprinkles of transcendental cinema, which is not what I expected at all. And, and I'll mention another one so as not to give away the moment you're talking about, but how about the one where, um, as we've seen in a number of instances, Dick is in his favorite chair, he's fallen asleep, and he's kind of gently snoring. And suddenly, this is in Kirsten's apartment, the chair begins to float in the yeah. room right yeah. and yep. and that was like th- like that's totally a Paul Schrader transcendental cinema little touch there um, in the movie. And I think we get a few others. I think it's also an element of that um, that final sequence you're talking about. And and while we're citing other films and filmmakers, I, I should mention and, and listeners will probably remember. But last time I did nominate a film called Our Time Machine for a golden brick, a Chinese mm-hmm. documentary that, um, you know, it. It chronicles an equally moving artistic project between an aging parent suffering from dementia and an adult child. So I say that just so that if people haven't caught up with it and they find Dick Johnson is dead to be really rewarding, um, definitely make time for our time machine because it's distinct in a lot of ways, but also a project whose um, whose kind of goal is very similar and is mm-hmm. is a fascinating parallel companion piece. I do want to reference an article that I read when I was trying to do a little bit of research about Johnson for the setup. Vulture recently did a profile of her, and it ends with this description by Johnson of kind of the overall project, but also getting really detailed and specific about where things stand right now with him. And I think you'll understand after you hear me read it, why it resonated so much. She says, what I'm trying to do is accompany my father to the edge of this cliff, right? At some unexpected moment, he's going to drop off the cliff and then he's gone. When we got him to this home, I was like, okay, new metaphor. We've walked along the cliff. He fell off the cliff, but he's only fallen five feet down. He's hanging by Hmm. a branch at the facility. She recalls him begging her to take him back. 
I'm standing at the top of the cliff looking at my father five feet down holding onto a branch and I'm saying, I can't come get you. You've got to stay there. It's like, are you kidding? No human should have to do this. And yet this is what humans have to do, right? At a certain point, you have to stay at the top of the cliff. Well, mm. I mean, I think I think I can see from your reaction how that's resonating with you, Josh. But yeah, it's I think too it much to right. It speaks to though Johnson's gift as a filmmaker and as a storyteller, how she thinks in metaphor. But beyond that, right. that example also shows how she thinks visually, always visually. Like, I understand that feeling she's trying to express, even though it's one I can't personally relate to, haven't gone through yet. But I understand exactly what she's going through, or at least believe I do, so clearly and powerfully because of the image that she created for us there just in that story. It's just so fundamental to who she is, obviously, as a camera person. Yeah. I mean, she's an incredible talent. Um, And as you said, at the very top camera person was um, just this brilliant, almost um, abstract project. And then she comes around with this, which is, you know, much more personal and inventive in different ways. Um, It's it's hard to imagine holding those two films really in your hand at the same time, as much as they are related. And so I'll be incredibly excited to see what she's able to come up with next. Yeah. And as we've described it, it may be for some viewers a little bit of a painful and harrowing experience. But as we've also touched on in terms of gifts, one of the gifts to us is just Dick Johnson's laugh. I think. Oh, man. I mean, yeah. he, he scarcely opens or closes a sentence without one. Yep. Yeah. He's I mean, you need this man for this project to work as much as we've been praising totally kirsten for her creative vision and her capabilities this would not work if if her father was not as open honest and as you said you know wanting to keep this connection with her as long as he can that that's mm-hmm. really the crucial element that the movie needed and fortunately got the fact that he's willing to keep doing this right? he's doing for you with love He's doing it for me with love. Yeah, he'll do anything for me. Can you just like put one arm up against the wall? Like, yeah, that's nice. Dick Johnson is Dead is available now on Netflix. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. So aging parents have been the subject of some really strong movies. Find out which one listeners voted as their favorite when we reveal the results of the film spotting poll next. Plus, our overlooked auteurs marathon continues with Barbara Loden's Wanda. Stay with us. I don't want to leave the house again. is he this mozart he's remarkable he's an unprincipled spoiled conceited brat i'm a vulgar man but i assure you my music is not 
That's Tom Hulse as Mozart in the 1985 Best Picture winner, Amadeus, directed by Milos Forman. Next week, we're going to go all in on Mozart with a top five Mozart movie moments. We had so much fun doing the Morricone tribute a few weeks ago, Josh. Why not stick with the music theme? And we will do an 8 from 84 review of Amadeus. Indeed. And I already put the call out on social media just before we hopped on here. A lot of good options, Adam. Some that I had completely forgot about, some that I had not heard before. So yeah, looking forward to compiling my list. Well, I was hoping we wouldn't get any good feedback and I just pick all five of mine from Amadeus. That's another route you could go. One way that you can support Film Spotting is to join the 950-ish members of the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. Josh, have we been delivering enough <laughs> well, to our family members lately? You know, it wasn't until I sat down and kind of looked at the calendar because these events are all fun. So it kind of it doesn't feel like work, doesn't feel like a chore. But then right. I did sit down and realize within 10 days, yeah, we did trivia spotting. We had our watch party. And we had our bonus review of Paris, Texas. So things have been busy for the film spotting family. They have indeed. And it was our first ever watch party. You, me, Sam Van Halgren, our producer, my daughter Sophie joined, and of course, our PA, Kat Sullivan, took some questions from our listeners. And we all watched Steven Soderbergh's film spotting pantheon worthy film out of sight together. And we hadn't done this before, so we were figuring it out as we went a little bit, and by all accounts, it went well. I mean, first of all, we had fun, and we did survey the participants after, and the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. Actually wanted to share this bit from an anonymous listener. I live in Seattle and have been a longtime film spotting listener, about 10 years, so this was the closest I can probably come to attending a live event. I absolutely loved it. I love movies, but I'm by no means an expert on them, so it was just fun being in community with other folks that also love to watch movies. I also fangirled a little when Josh Adam or Kat responded to one of my chat comments. The event was a moment of joy in a very dark time right now. Thank you. I think maybe my favorite comment, or one of my favorites, was from the person who said, I couldn't actually watch with you guys. I was doing something else, maybe making something in the kitchen, but just having it on in the background and listening <laughs> to you guys talk about the movie was enough. So yeah, seems like it was a success, Josh. That's dedication. And, and yeah, you can, if we do this again, you should know, you know, you can participate along with us through the chat feature in Zoom. So Kat was funneling some of the questions and comments our way and it made it, you know, a, a community-wide commentary experience. Yeah, and we are confident we're going to do it again because we're setting it as a goal now for when we hit 1,000. Just about 50 patrons away, so it could happen relatively soon. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, get us to 1,000 over at patreon.com slash filmspotting and we will do another watch party event. You might even help to get determine which movie we watch. You can suggest some choices. We'll narrow it down to three, and then the family members do ultimately get to pick. They're the ones who very wisely picked Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight. And we do have another trivia spotting event coming up October 16th. This is exclusively for our family members. We can only have about 60 people participate, and we're calling it Trivia Spotting, the Zoom Ultimatum. Of course we are. The, the third entry in what will be much longer, hopefully, than a trilogy. Again, Friday, October 16th. We have special guests who end up being the captains on each team. So about six or seven Film Spotting family members randomly assigned, and then they might get Josh, they might get me, they might get Sam. And that's all fine, except when we keep upping the ante 
on the guest pool, the VIP pool, then I know we're going to hit a point where they're like, oh, I got Adam (laughs) stuck with Adam again. (laughs) Like that's coming when you've got Michael Phillips in the mix and some of these other people. But those are the breaks. And I'm going to announce it here because it is out there to the film spotting family, the public, if you will. One of our special guests this time. How about actor, director, writer, all around great comic mind? David Wayne is going to participate in trivia spotting the Zoom Ultimatum. Could be your captain. Now, I don't know. I assume he has extensive movie knowledge, but I can guarantee you that team, whoever gets David as a captain, they're going to have the most fun. So, yeah, I may have to angle to get on David's team and we'll just leave some team rudderless. But if you're not a family member and that event sounds like a lot of fun, then join the family. You might be one of those lucky 60 who is able to get a ticket. Again, patreon.com slash film spotting. We remind you that you can pay by month or annual memberships are now available. You get a 10% discount, basically one month free and maybe an extra buck in there, Josh, to buy some gum. We include as part of our Patreon benefits that every once in a while we're going to give people a shout out here on the show. And we have not done that with any great diligence. We would like to make up for that now. Feature a listener comment, a new family member who sent us this very nice note. This comes from Keenan Collette. Dear Adam, Josh, and Sam, it's taken me a long time to get to this step, but as I was listening to the latest episode on landscapes as characters, I realized that this show has given me so much and it's beyond time to give back. I've listened to you for years and across three countries. First, as a university student in South Africa, when my cinephilia started and film spotting gave me a language to discuss and appreciate cinema. Then, while I was working in New Zealand in 2018, slinging drinks to afford a visa to the UK and fitting in visits to Auckland's fantastic Academy cinema, broadening my horizons even more. And now living in London with more incredible cinemas and streaming platforms than I know what to do with. You've been a guiding light and an oral refuge. From marathons to massacres, top fives to totally outrageous madness lineups, this podcast continues to shine brightly. Thank you, thank you, thank you. A special thank you to Sam and Joe. Despite the world spinning out of control this year, the podcast remains expertly produced. Please rest assured that your hard work is noticed and greatly appreciated. All the best for the future. I'm looking forward to every episode to come. Best wishes from your continent-hopping listener. Such a nice note, and it was generous of him and appropriate that he called out Sam and Joe there specifically, obviously, for the incredible work they do on the show. And he mentions being in London now after all that continent hopping. So many formative movies, Josh, I saw when I was a junior in college and spent a semester in London, went to a repertory theater for the first time. I don't think I'd ever heard of that before living in Iowa. And I saw three Kurosawa films in one day. It was like Ron and Throne of Blood. And I don't even remember what the other film was, but just going out and hitting the West End, seeing plays, concerts, and seeing movies. There was so much culture there, so I'm definitely jealous of Keenan. Yeah, great film scene for sure in London, absolutely. One final mention, patreon.com slash filmspotting. Massacre Theater is the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed last week's, here's a bit of that massacre. Please, Birdie. It's happened before, you know. Some of the world's happiest marriages have started under the gun, you might say. Nah, she's just not the girl for me. Yeah, she's only perfect. 
We got a note, Adam, a performance note, a director's note uh-huh. here from Andrew Howell. He's in Lake Oswego, Oregon. He also sent in a link to an SNL skit to kind of back up his note here. I feel like this is what inspired your performance. Adam does an impression of Dana Carvey doing an impression of blank. Was that what you were going for? Dead on. Dead on. The (laughs) only sense of an impression I have of this person comes from Dana Carvey via SNL. In fact, it's entirely possible that I discovered Dana Carvey doing this actor's impression before I ever actually saw the actor on screen in a movie. So it is firmly, firmly implanted in my brain. Andrew Howell nailed it. And that may, in fact, give you a clue. Not that Dana Carvey didn't do a ton of impressions, obviously, over his tenure on Saturday Night Live. We will say for the record that, no, I wasn't doing an impression of Ross Perot or George H.W. Bush. It definitely was an actor, an esteemed actor. I didn't probably bring him much dignity, though, did I? Uh, No. No, but I appreciate it more now that I know that's what you were going for, Carvey. That's what I was going for. It makes sense now. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, October 5th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and we'll announce it on next week's show. We do always love to plug our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. Great pairing this week. You heard us talk about Dick Johnson is Dead. You can now hear them talk about it probably in a smarter fashion than us, Josh. They are pairing that movie with Orson Welles' F for Fake. So both films very much taking advantage of artifice to try to get at truth. I think maybe that's the most eloquent way I can put it. I'm sure they say it much better over on that show hosted by Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can learn more at nextpictureshow.net. One of the few good memories of my childhood were those summers at Nine Eyes. They had that garden. Yeah, yeah, and I would catch dragonflies. And then we just moved to the States Everything was different. Everyone was gone. It was just the three of us. And it was hard. It was hard for us, too. Aquafina there with Diana Lynn in that clip from Lulu Wong's The Farewell. It was one of the options we gave you a couple weeks back in the film spotting poll, which asked, what is the best film from the last decade about adults and their aging parents? Of course, we were anticipating our conversation about Dick Johnson is dead, and we gave you these options. Beginners, The Farewell, The Meyerowitz Stories, Nebraska, Stories We Tell, Tony Erdman, or if we missed a great choice, you could write in your candidate, Josh. How did the poll come out? Well, Other is in last place with 4%. Then came, with 6%, The Meyerowitz Stories, the Baumbach film starring Dustin Hoffman as the caustic artist father and Adam Sandler, Ben Stiller, and Elizabeth Marvel as his grown kids. Next up, with 13% of the vote, was Mike Mills Beginners. That one stars Christopher Plummer alongside Ewan McGregor. Tony Erdman, directed by Maren Ade, film from Germany. That's next with 14% of the vote. Then came Stories We Tell, Sarah Polly's 2012 doc, receiving 16% of the vote. In second place here is Alexander Payne's Nebraska, starring Bruce Dern and Will Forte as the father-son pair on a road trip. And in first place, winning the poll, Adam, was The Farewell, 26% of the vote. 
Devin Shattuck says, I went with Tony Erdman, just an absolutely hilarious, but also enormously big hearted and moving film. I like a couple of the other choices, but this is the only masterpiece for me. Here's Dylan Dom from Blair, Nebraska. So many great movies to choose from, but I have no choice but to pick Nebraska. I grew up in a small town of 800 people where Payne actually shot several scenes for the film. When Hollywood so often depicts small town people as dumb hicks, Payne painted a portrait of a town filled with vibrant characters. Along with its brilliant depiction of a father and son's relationship, it's one of the best portrayals of small town life ever put on screen. Simon Smith says, I knew Meyerowitz wouldn't get the love it deserves in this poll, and that's fine. I know it isn't for everyone, but it's a beautiful story about intergenerational arrested development caused by abusive parental neglect and the lengths grown children go to to fix irreversible emotional damage. I know this sounds sad, even depressing, and it kind of is, but when told by one of Baumbach's tightest of scripts, it is a joy. The intricate running bits, the unflinchingly harsh deliveries, the anthology-esque structure, all with an overlooked ensemble cast and great Adam Sandler performance. It's rare to find a film that makes you feel so at home among such an insufferable group of people, but Meyerowitz does. I could go on, but you get it. Revisit this gem. One more comment here comes from Maddie. Considering Kirsten Johnson is the inspiration for this poll, I find it surprising that you overlooked her debut film, Camera Person, in which footage of Johnson's own aging mother is juxtaposed against families throughout the world struggling with their own ordeals, be they a son's lost boxing match or the Bosnian genocide. Camera Person explores the relationship between the personal and the political by exploring one cinematographer's relationship with those she filmed. Yeah, I don't think Sam could ever be accused of overlooking camera person. He loves that film so much, maybe just on a technicality, as that is such a small piece of that movie, Josh. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. The whole film comprised of vignettes and the scenes with Kirsten Johnson's mother are maybe a handful of those. So I Mm -hmm. think that's probably why it didn't make the cut. Well, a couple of weeks from now, we're planning to get to a review of Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7. It's possible Aaron Sorkin is going to come on film spotting. No, that has not been finalized. The Trial of the Chicago 7 hits Netflix on October 16th, and our new poll question is asking you simply, what is your favorite courtroom movie? We can't call them courtroom dramas because there's one that probably qualifies more as a comedy. The criteria here, or really the criterion, is that it has to be a movie about a court case. So that means... No to Kill a Mockingbird. Now, there's great consternation Mm. here on the part of our producer, Sam, who made this poll question because he's just expecting we're going to get inundated with people saying, how could you leave out to kill a Mockingbird? It is one of the first movies we all think of in our minds, whether you fully appreciate it as much as you should or not, Josh Larson. Mm -hmm. It's a film that a lot of people do think of as a courtroom drama. But maybe again here, we're kind of going to that technicality rule, it just doesn't feel as much like a trial movie as our other options. Well, and this way we can just avoid talking about my underappreciation for To Kill a Mockingbird, right? If we don't put it on the poll, we could just move right (laughs) past that. Well, we can, but I was going to say this, proving once and again that time is a flat circle and has no meaning. In my mind, I was thinking, yeah, we talked about To Kill a Mockingbird a few years ago here on the show. Like I was imagining saying that right now to you and to our audience. So I finally decided I should look it up. And I realized it was the second, I think, Sacred Cow movie we ever did after Pulp Fiction. And that was from November 2012. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's eight years old. That time has flown by, Adam. That's just how much fun and wisdom we've been dispensing on this show. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly it. Why don't you read through the options that we did think qualified 
as courtroom movies. Okay. Sidney Lumet's 12 Angry Men. Oh, oh boy. Okay. There we go. <laughs> Another issue We're back here. to confrontation and disagreement. Great. <laughs> okay, we'll move on. Rob Reiner's A Few Good Men, which of course was written by Aaron Sorkin. Then Lumet's The Verdict, that one starring Paul Newman. Here's the comedy of the bunch, My Cousin Vinny. Can't wait to see how many votes that gets. Jonathan Demme's Philadelphia is another option. And then Judgment at Nuremberg. Of course, we'll have other if there's a film you think should be included as well and you want to give that one a vote. Now, in early voting, not surprisingly, 12 Angry Men is in the lead, Josh, though Tim Oliver, of course, wrote, I'm surprised other isn't faring better right off the bat. I thought an obvious miss was to kill a mockingbird. So, yeah, (laughs) we'll see how other does eventually fare. Maybe a lot of people will just decide to ignore our criterion and vote it in. Anyway, I like all of the movies in this poll. And could see choosing any one of them. I think for me, Josh, it comes down to the two movies, honestly, on this list that I think probably did the most, at least for me, just speaking for me in terms of making me have some sense of what a trial is, what a trial can be, the process of dispensing justice in our American legal system. Honestly, the two movies Mm -hmm. are 12 Angry Men and My Cousin Vinny. And there's one movie on this list I've watched way more times than all the other movies combined. And that's My Cousin Vinny. And I think it's a really great film. And that's my vote. Okay. Respectable. I'm I'm glad to see it get a vote here early on. I think I'm going to go with, you know, I've only seen three of these. So I don't, I really shouldn't be allowed to vote. Um, I'm not voting for 12 Angry Men. You're recusing yourself from the case? I might have to. I might have to. I do think 12 Angry Men is going to beat the poll into submission just as it beats viewers into submission. How dare you? I don't think I can go with my cousin cousin Vinny. So for me, it's a few good men. I'm going to vote a few good men. Okay. You can vote in this poll. Tell Josh, please, in the comments how wrong he is about both 12 Angry Men and... To kill a mockingbird, even though it's not an option (laughs) over film spotting. Just pleasing the people this week, Adam. That's all I'm doing. Filmspotting.net. Not have anything. Never did have anything. Never will have anything. You're stupid. I'm stupid. You don't want anything, you won't have anything. You don't have anything, you're nothing. May as well be dead. You're not even a citizen of the United States. I guess I'm dead then. That's a clip from the 1970 film Wanda, written, directed by, and starring Barbara Loden. Michael Higgins also in that clip. Wanda is the next film, not the fourth film, but the fourth installment in our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon. It is the only feature... Loden directed. She died of cancer in 1980. At age 48, she started as an actress, mostly on the stage, later appearing in Elia Kazan's Red River and then Splendor in the Grass. She was a member of Kazan's famed actor's studio and later married Elia Kazan. The low-budget Wanda, which New Yorker critic Richard Brody has compared to the work of John Cassavetes, is about a woman played by Loden who abandons her impoverished life in Pennsylvania coal country, leaving behind a husband and two young children. By chance, she winds up on the run with a small-time thief, the abusive and hard-drinking Mr. Dennis, as she calls him, played by Higgins. Wanda had its debut at the 1970 Venice Film Festival, where it won the Best Foreign Film Prize. So, Adam, Cassavetes certainly came to mind for me watching this, but it's interesting because, you know, Cassavetes in the 60s, 
well-established in the independent film scene already, yet a woman under the influence didn't come until 74. 74. Yeah. And this is 70. And so it was interesting to me because I I, I thought it that had to have been an influence. Wanda had to have been an influence sure. on some part on a woman under the influence. And then I'm thinking the other film this made me think of is Badlands, Malik's Badlands, right? Yeah. Badlands, 73. So here, obviously, Wanda itself influenced by Bonnie and Clyde, which came out in 67. We'll probably get into how it's an, an interesting riff or maybe a, a reimagining of that in some ways. But here it kind of sits at 70, and I'm realizing this is a movie that likely influenced two monumental works of cinema. Mm-hmm. And to my discredit, and I think to cinephiles' discredit at large, it's it's rarely been talked about until recent years when it kind of popped up on my radar. Mm-hmm. Um, this thing is, you know, in its own right, incredibly fascinating and yes. yet has to be really a crucially influential, instrumental film leading into the 70s, wouldn't you say? Yeah, for sure. And this is indeed why we have embarked on an overlooked auteurs marathon. It's overlooked. She is overlooked, Barbara Loden, by us. And maybe the auteur framing there doesn't apply in one sense. She only got to make one film. What a voice and <laughs> what a talent she exhibits here in this movie, which she did, as we said, write, direct, and stars in. This is completely her movie. And in some ways, whether or not it ties back to her actual life or not feels so intimate and personal. And you're right. I think you got all the main touch points there. The Badlands one in particular, I love seeing Wanda as a counterpoint to Sissy SpaceX character in that movie, getting caught up with Mm -hmm. the wrong guy going on this crime spree. But of course, where Sissy SpaceX character has such actual childlike innocence wanda is childlike in many Mm -hmm. ways but whatever the opposite of innocence is world weariness having having seen almost everything and just kind of having to take the punches every day of what life gives you it is the opposite in a lot of ways and it's a tough movie to connect with it's it's a bleak movie and and loden does very little initially i think to make us try to relate to or understand Wanda, even when we see her interact with her former husband and her two kids, she she shows no remorse or sensitivity whatsoever. Right. She isn't interested in having any role in her kids' lives. She says they'll be better off with him. Yep. And I think we're kind of left to read between the lines of what that relationship might have truly been like, not just the way the husband's representing it and representing him. And and really only from her actions throughout the whole film do we realize how rooted her behavior must be, her psychology must be in abuse. But again, Loden doesn't make any of that really explicitly clear, though we do see the mistreatment she suffers at the hands of most men she encounters. But I, I agree, it's an extraordinary work, and I think part of it is how Loden combines different elements into something that feels wholly unique. It is on one level this crime movie. It's a quirkier, even more dysfunctional and probably dangerous in some way, Bonnie and Clyde. Like I'm thinking about Mr. Dennis and the way he is so paranoid and how quickly he can he can fly off the handle. He scares me more than than Warren Beatty or Faye Dunaway ever did, right, in Bonnie and Clyde. And they're on this crime spree. And Wanda's part of it, surely because of her sense of codependency, maybe needing a man, even one that treats her terribly. 
But also, Josh, what else does she have to do? She goes moment to moment, man to man, need to need, just seeing where it takes her. But then you have that combined with the grainy 16 millimeter look, the aspect ratio, the square aspect ratio, the handheld camera, the setting, it being coal mining country, blue collar workers, impoverished people, not exactly Hollywood stuff. We don't see movies made about these people unless it's something like a few years later, we're going to get Barbara Koppel doing a documentary about Harlan County, USA. But it is like a verite documentary, too, with her curlers in her hair at that <laughs> custody hearing. Yeah. It's easy to feel like you've just dropped in at an actual custody hearing. You've dropped in on this couple going through this scenario. And I think as well, you have to talk about Loden's performance itself and how oh, yeah. it fits into this scheme as well. But but I'll stop and let you jump in on what you appreciated about it. Yeah, we'll definitely get to the performance. Well, this is where, you know, for the reasons you mentioned, Cassavetes had to be an influence on Loden too, right? She right. chose, after he's doing this work in the 60s, she chose for her filmmaking de- debut to work in the independent film scene. So she she chose this kind of grainy approach, the camera work that you're talking about. And yet she manages some real beauty in it too. Think about, this came to mind because we just did our top five landscapes as characters <laughs> with Gregory Crudson last show. Right. And you get that early shot of Wanda wearing mostly white. It's a long shot from far away, wandering out of this house she's been staying at. I'm assuming it's maybe her sister's. Yeah, that's what I got. But she's not welcome there anymore. And so she wanders out amidst this coal mining pit dark gray all around her. She's the solitary figure and she's kind of trudging through it on her own. It's almost apocalyptic. But, you know, the irony of this is that that setting almost after we get about an hour into the movie seems safer than when she goes out into the real world, which are, which are these bars, these hotels, Mm -hmm. these shopping centers. And Again, it's because she's just trying to survive, and it's a meager existence, a moment-by-moment existence, and essentially it's an existence that's left to the mercy of men who have cash and who have cars. And that's the only way she knows how to eat, how to get food, how to get shelter, right? right? To survive. It's that simple. So, so yeah, to tell this story, you know, it it is interesting that she decided to go gritty- lo-fi the independent film scene and it's completely of a piece with that sort of movement yeah for sure and i had a feeling you'd bring up that shot it does get your attention it probably did get our attention even more coming off that top five and sure that that really fun list that we did with gregory crudson it either you could decide ruined us or it made us better viewers because sophie and i watching wanda together both out loud at the same time said Landscape is character. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) So we were very aware of that. But you're right. It's, again, a moment where it's very verite and that it starts at a distance. It establishes this space and then it it zooms in and it's Mm -hmm. almost two minutes long and it stays for the most part at a distance. But that shot alone, Josh, is almost two minutes. And it really does suggest and so perfectly capture her sense of disconnection, her alienation, the same way so many movies that made our top five list about landscapes do. And as I was talking about Loden's mixture of this decidedly non-Hollywood material with a crime movie. What's more Hollywood than that, than mm-hmm. that genre, right? You also feel like Loden somehow, it seemed to me, has largely cast 
non-professional performers, these people all feel, for the most part, like real people yeah, that inhabit this world, right? And then you've got Loden herself as Wanda. If you weren't otherwise familiar with her work, and I mean, I guess I could say I'm not either. I mean, when I started the movie, I'll be honest, when I started it, I wasn't sure that that was Barbara Loden. I didn't remember doing any research on it. I didn't know who the actress was, and I didn't recognize her. Now, I have seen Splendor in the Grass. It was ages ago, and I don't remember her performance in it. But if you then, like me, weren't familiar with her work, then it's so easy to feel like whoever directed this managed to find this woman. Mm. They found Wanda wandering around small-town Pennsylvania and decided to try to tell her story. And, of course, now... With some distance, I know that Loden is this seasoned performer, an accomplished actress. She taught acting for many years, and she just pulls off the authenticity, yeah. the sense of discovery in the moment, the unpredictability that I associate with the best non-professional performances, where it's just it's just every scene achingly honest without ever asking really for any sympathy whatsoever. Yeah, you're so right. It's It's the patience, too. I think it's not the mm-hmm. it's not the feel to rush to the point of the scene. And I think this comes a little bit from knowing that you're working within independent cinema too, where you're not always worried about the payoff. I think this is a performance that's defined by its pauses and those moments that Loden takes to emphasize, often non-verbally, just what this character is facing, what her life is like. I think about that that little moment when she wanders into a bar. This is early on, and she's sitting at a table. She's ordered a beer. It's there at her table, and she hears the guy over at the bar, a customer, tell the bartender he's going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And what she does is she drops her head, tilts it away from the man who said that, not because she doesn't want it to happen, but because she knows a couple of things. She knows now the obligation she feels. And she also knows this is maybe kind of why she came into the bar for this moment. Yeah. And thirdly, no, she doesn't want it to really happen. And so she's buying herself by just lowering her head and turning away slightly. She's buying herself maybe four seconds before she has to go on with this ritual, what it's kind of become for her. And and there's another moment when she's at another bar in another bathroom that she snuck into for a moment of privacy. She's washing her face and she just stops washing her face and kind of holds her face, leaning over the sink, clinging to these seconds of peace before she has to go outside and face whatever is is going to be in front of her there. And I think that's the sort of authenticity you're talking about Mm -hmm. where it it didn't really strike me that way watching it. But as you say that, yes, she is way closer to the likely non-professional actors we see on the screen than she is to someone like Michael Higgins, who I think is giving a very good performance too, but it it does feel more like a, a screen performance. Whereas Loden, to me, is in the same register as those other non-professional actors. Where's your husband? What husband? Your husband. I guess he's got himself a real good wife by now. Got a real good wife. What about the kids? Kids. Yeah. I saw that picture in your wallet. Well, they're with him. Better off with him. I'm just no good. (laughs) Just no good. It is a performance 
but it's not performative. That's how I feel watching Loden. And maybe yeah. Higgins is a little bit more, but I know this is implicit in what you were saying about that bar scene. Not only the obligation she feels, but the obligation she feels because of now what that man feels he's entitled to. Exactly. Right? Of exactly. course. And yeah. this is this is where that Cassavetes comparison comes back into play. You're right. Four years before a woman under the influence and Wanda very much is one in that she is troubled. She's unstable, could probably come up with five or six more adjectives to describe her. But I think like Mabel, she's a character who we come to understand has been handed roles by society. This is this is what you do. This is what a woman like you does. You become a wife. You become a mother. And these roles didn't fit her. And she had no say in it whatsoever. And I do like the storytelling approach here by Loden. Again, she doesn't really spell things out too much. We come to understand this basically from those opening scenes. It informs that understanding because we see her wake up on the couch. We see that she's probably living with her sister and she's got the crying baby and the husband's going off to work. And we see from his reaction how he feels mm -hmm. about Wanda staying there. And am I recalling correctly, the sister the wife in this sequence, she even says to her husband as he goes out the door angrily, oh, come on back and get some coffee. It's like yeah. she knows that she she has that job, that no matter the circumstances or how big of a jerk he's being, it's her role, mm. right? It's her role to ultimately serve him and give him coffee. And even in that custody scene I mentioned, this is another one where, right, the father, the former husband and the judge in this sequence have all the power to decide how she should behave as a woman. And, yeah. and a lot of this is prescribed and dictated to her. And it's funny, Sam mentioned this to me in Slack, and he actually commented along these lines in his review on Letterboxd. He had this framing of the movie or this lens on it that was seeing the whole story in a way as a metaphor for life as an actress. And it's something when he mentioned it to me, I had to admit it's not something that occurred to me at all or I was attuned to. But I was rewatching scenes today and there is that sequence where she's in the bathtub with Mr. Dennis in the other room on the bed and they're setting up the heist scene. Right. And she has turned down this role of playing the part he wants her to play, right? Numerous times up to this point saying, I can't go through with it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to put people in danger or whatever. We have to assume for ourselves what it is that might be bothering her about this. She simply doesn't want to do it, but she does acquiesce, or I suppose maybe a better way to say it was she just finally gives up mm -hmm. and stops resisting. And she's rehearsing her lines and she's taking his direction. And it just made me think that when you have no agency, which she doesn't, you can then understand the impulse to relinquish it completely, right? Mm. Okay, you want me to be this? I'll be that. It's easier than resisting. It's easier than having to kind of make decisions for yourself and act and suffer the consequences of it. And that's why it's so important that a short time after this, we finally do see her exert her will, right? With a man. That is what really brought me back really to a woman under the influence is, yes, there's the the overall Cassavetes-esque aesthetic and there's that comparison to Mabel in terms of performance, maybe even a little bit too, though, obviously Jenna Rollins, I think is giving what we would say is a bigger performance, but what they're rebelling against yeah. <laughs> and Wanda's doing it in a much more subtle and passive way, but they're rebelling against the same thing, which is being put into roles that they never asked for and aren't really right for. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where her relationship with Mr. Dennis is, is really interesting because it's, it's sexual, but it's also parental. 
in a strange way. And it's mm-hmm. professional in the way you're describing where he's directing right. her, where he's her boss in this heist. The very fact that she calls him Mr. Dennis right. is, is weirdly professional. Or, or how about the moment? I think this is their first dinner together. She's sloppily eating this plate of spaghetti. And he says, wipe your mouth, will you? Like she's this little kid. And, and this, so it's in this relationship, she's bound up in all of these roles that society expects of her. It's like, it's like Mr. Dennis has kind of, she's this perfect storm of everything he wants her to be. Yeah. And maybe she doesn't want to be any of them, you know, but who could she be? That's what she never gets a chance to even explore. That's the tragedy of this movie. Right. And, and that's where we, you know, we can go to the end and where the movie is, where she's, you know, she's freed of, of Mr. Dennis to an extent, but where does she end up? She's in another bar, right? She's in, she's at this boozy, loud table smashed in between these people. And for all we know, there's another Mr. Dennis at that table. And I think Loden's camera in that sequence yeah. is pretty astonishing where it kind of squeezes its way right into that claustrophobic mix and finds her face. And, you know, it, another element of physicality to Loden's performance, she struck me as this like fawn, you know, this gangly fawn kind of yeah. kind of stumbling about in, in the forest. And here it's like she's trapped. She's just suddenly been hopelessly trapped. And it's this is one reason why it's a hard watch, I think. Yeah. Well, I even like the precursor to that scene where she's now wandered away from a pretty tough encounter with a man. It's dark and the way the camera follows her handheld as she approaches this bar where she can hear the music coming. She looks completely disheveled and unnerved and the camera is accordingly a little bit shaky and you see someone emerge at the top of the stairs, a man who even says something to her a little bit unintelligible, like, Hey, are you okay? Mm. And watching it again today, Josh, it was like, I completely would buy that that was just a guy in that room who walked out and and yeah, he saw the camera, but he also saw this woman looking as terrified Mm. as she looks and felt like he needed to ask her if she needed help. That's that's kind of the trick, right, that we're talking about with this movie. But that bar sequence at the end in particular, I think it does give us our second great final shot of the week. Mm. I won't spoil the Dick Johnson is dead final shot that we get but that freeze frame oh yeah on loden is just this look of utter utter exhaustion and yeah. and you're right it also captures appropriately how confined and how hopeless i think yeah. she feels right in that moment you feel like she's never going to get out it's, yeah, it's kind, it, it. It kind of traps her right there so can i ask you a, a question something i wasn't sure. sure about and i didn't have a chance to go back and look at it again even though this is on the Criterion channel. So if you are a subscriber to that, it's readily available. On the way to the bank for the heist, does she pass her ex-husband and the kids in a car? I feel like Mm. there was a scene where they're at a stoplight and she looks over, the camera looks over, and there's a guy in a station wagon and because the husband otherwise only appears in like one or maybe two scenes, I didn't have a a perfect fix on his face. Sounds like you you didn't immediately recognize that that happened. I didn't catch it, but it also wouldn't surprise me because, again, as I was rewatching some scenes today and I rewatched that scene in particular of the one of her walking across that desolate coal landscape, it is punctuated at the end by a shot of her husband 
in his car right. with his new woman and the two kids, and we see them peel off and go by. And so it does kind of set up that we would know what he drives. Right, right. Yeah, I think it might have been him. Yeah, it might have been. I do want to point out, speaking of the Criterion channel, that if you watched Wanda or watch it and, like us, were taken with the film and taken with Barbara Loden's performance in particular, there's also available—I don't know if you caught this, Josh, I only ended up watching about 10 minutes of it, but there's— a documentary yeah. also available called I Am Wanda, directed by Katja Raganelli. It came out in 1980, not long before she passed away, or it was shot, obviously, right before she passed away. And it basically explores through just some footage and interviews how she came to make Wanda. Like, the filmmaker's whole goal was just to understand what would make Barbara Loden sure. tell this story and tell it the way she does. So that is there. I need to finish it. But I did want to point that out, that it's also available on the Criterion channel. Yeah, I think it it's, starts to play automatically after the end credits. So I did catch the first couple of minutes of it and definitely want to finish that off myself. Next up for us in our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon is Lena Vertmuller's Seven Beauties. It got four Oscar nominations, including one for the director, the first Oscar directing nomination for a woman. More information about our marathon is available at filmspotting.net slash marathons. And Josh, no freeze frames here. That is our show. Indeed. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And over at the website, Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking, what is your favorite courtroom movie? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at Filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in limited release this weekend, Possessor. This is a new sci-fi thriller from Brandon Cronenberg. Yes, the son of David Andrea Risborough as a corporate assassin who uses implant technology to terminate targets. Jennifer Jason Lee and Christopher Abbott also star. I'm intrigued and am eager to catch up with that one, Josh, but haven't yet. Save Yourselves is out. A young couple heads out of town to reconnect and disconnect from digital life. How about this premise, this high concept premise, phoneless they miss the news that the planet is under attack. And see, this is why I make sure my phone is attached to my hand at all times. Mm, I'm glad you have a reason. We should also mention, Adam, that Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks, a bit of a strange release schedule, but it is going to be in some theaters October 2. I know here in Chicago, it'll be at the Landmark Century Center Cinema. This is before its release on Apple TV Plus, October 23. So if you happen to be in one of those theaters, I'll just say for now, I can recommend it. They'll mm -hmm. set your expectations more along the lines of a very Merry Christmas than Lost in Translation. If you're thinking okay. of this as some sort of spiritual sequel to Lost. So yeah. So that's on the rocks. Yeah. Open, very limited release, October 2, and then comes to Apple TV Plus, October 23. Yeah. And maybe around that time, we will get to a full review of it here on the show. The schedule isn't set in stone, but we were thinking we would wait until that movie hits digital before discussing it. I haven't had a chance to see On the Rocks yet. Also out on digital this weekend, The Boys in the Band. It's an adaptation of the landmark 1968 play about a group of gay men in New York City out this past Wednesday on Netflix. It stars Zachary Quinto, Andrew Rannells, and Jim Parsons. And I'm very curious, Josh, because I haven't viewed any incarnation of 
The Boys in the Band sounds like a great cast. I will be watching that on Netflix this weekend. We might have a few words on it next week on the show, along with our top five Mozart movie moments and our discussion of Best Picture winner from 1984, Amadeus. That's part of our 8 from 84 series. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week comes from Tim Heidecker. It's from his new album, Fear of Death. More information is at TimHeidecker.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.